Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. And we are going to work through one of the most encouraging passages in the New Testament. So I am a pessimist by nature, so this has been very difficult for me this week because this has been very convicting because God tends to be an optimist. And so we're going to see some encouragement from this passage uh, here in these verses. Before we get into them, I want to mention this. What the Apostle Paul is going to do in this section of text today is he's going to give us seven rhetorical questions, okay? Does everybody know what a rhetorical question is? Okay, I just asked one. In case you didn't know, I just gave you an example. A rhetorical question is not where you're supposed to blurt out an answer. It's where you're supposed to think about the answer to the question that's been given, right? It's like the Socratic method. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it is an excellent way to teach. It's where instead of giving someone an answer, you ask questions in such a way to where they come to the answer on their own, and that way it sticks with them. It's more powerful, right? It's named after Socrates. So if you read, uh, for example, Plato's Republic, he'll have Socrates, his mouthpiece, go up to somebody and say something like, what is justice? And someone will respond, well, I think justice is whoever's the strongest can do what they want. And then Socrates will be like, do you see why that's stupid? And he'll ask them a bunch of questions until they come to the answer that he wants them to come to. So don't you think it's more powerful if you're making points to let people come to that realization on their own instead of just saying it? There, see, I just did the Socratic method now. You've just realized, yes, that is more powerful, okay? Now, when the Bible is asking rhetorical questions, or Paul is teaching in this way, we're not supposed to just see a guy asking random questions. We're supposed to get the answers to these questions. We're supposed to think about these questions. We're supposed to dwell on these questions, and that affects our actions. So I'll give you an example. I'm going to confess something to you, okay? I've I've heard that this is a safe place at Parkway to confess things, so I'm going to confess something to you. There are times when I'm playing with my one-year-old daughter, and she has, let's just say, a dirty diaper, okay? Now, if mom is not at home, I'll change it. But if mom's in the same room, sometimes I'll act like I don't smell it, and I'll wait for her to crawl over to mama, and then mama's like, oh, you have a dirty diaper, and I'm like, yes, score one, team dad, right? Okay, don't judge me, I know you do the same thing. Now, if mama's not there, I change her, I'm not gonna make her sit in that, but there are times where I will uh, manipulate the situation in such a way to where mama has to change the diaper. Now, sometimes my sweet wife catches on to what I'm doing, and she says something like this, would you mind changing her diaper? Now, when she asks that, she's not asking a question to which I can actually say no. She's giving a command on par with Scripture that you must now go do this. I know what you're doing. Stop being a deadbeat dad and go change the diaper, okay? So in the same way, when the Apostle Paul is asking these questions, he's not just asking random questions. You're supposed to get something from these questions, and these questions lead to conclusions that are tremendously encouraging tremendously encouraging. You're anxious, you're afraid, you're stressing out, you think God hates you, let's look at these verses. Well, before we do, let me pray, and then we'll get into verse 31. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've given us the Son and the Spirit. We thank you that uh, you care for us, that nothing can separate us from your love. And so I just pray that uh, these verses would be wedged down deep into our hearts, that we might love you and know you more. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the book of Romans. And we thank you here for Romans 8. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? We see the first rhetorical questions. There's two of them here. The first one is, what shall we say to these things? By the way, what are these things being referred to here when he says, what shall we say to these things? Well, it's not only what's been said thus far in chapter 8, that we have the spirit, that we're going to be resurrected, that no matter what we go through in suffering, God will persevere and he will preserve us. That's very encouraging. But these things contextually goes on all the way back to chapter 5. What Paul is saying is everything good we've been saying about our Christian life from chapter 5 through chapter 8 of Romans, the fact that we are now in Christ and not in Adam, the fact that we have been given new life, the fact that our sins have been washed away, the fact that uh, we've died to our old self, we've died to the Mosaic law, we have the Spirit, we're going to be resurrected, all these good things, he now summarizes and says, what shall we say about all of that? Today we're going to look at the conclusion of chapters 5 through 8 in Romans, okay? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, I want to pause right there because this is fascinating, okay? Listen, this is huge if you can get this. God is for you. Do you believe that? That God is on the side of humanity? That God likes saving people? That God likes redeeming people? That God is for us, not against us? John 3.17. You know John 3.16. You see that uh, behind the end zone at every football game. Here's John 3.17, though. Listen to this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There are six billion people out there that think God sent his son into the world to condemn the world. Do you realize that God is for us? This text just says that he is. There's a great song. There there are some Christian songs that I think are cheesy you should stay away from. There are others, though, that are excellent. And I want to give you one that you can download later. You can listen to it, and it will make you cry. It's called You Are On Our Side by Bethany Dillon, and it says this. You sit at the table with the wounded and the poor. You laugh and share stories with the thief and the whore. When you could just be silent and leave us here to die, still you sent your son for us. You are on our side. This text is saying that God is for you. Now, not only is there a sense in which God is generically for humanity, in this specific text, though, it's talking about for you Christians, for those that know Christ, that if you know Christ, God goes from being an enemy of yours to being a friend, a supporter, that God goes from adopting you into his family. That's what it's saying, that God is for us. Yes, generically for humanity, but specifically in this context, for Christians. And the rhetorical question, the second one here is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us, okay? Now listen, that text is not saying that people won't try to be against you. What it's saying is that their accusations will not stick. It's not saying no one will oppose you. We've just seen from what uh, was taught last week that we will go through suffering. And the week before, people will oppose us. People will try to condemn us. The enemy will try to condemn us. There will be a lot of people who oppose us. What this text is saying when it says, who can be against us, is saying, who is stronger than God? Their accusations will be brought, but they won't be successful. I'll give you a little story. I have a lot of respect for police officers. Uh, I had one really bad experience, though, with a police officer when I was a kid, but I'm not going to read that on all of them. That'd be stereotyping, but I want to tell you a little story that I had when I was a kid. So, when I was in middle school, I was hanging out at the mall, because that's what you would do in middle school uh, when you're my age, okay? You would go to the mall, go to a place called Sam Goody. There's no more Sam Goodies. They're like the blockbusters of the mall. They're gone. And you'd go to Sam Goody, and you'd buy a CD, and you'd hang out at the mall. That's what was fun. Now, 
One time, I was hanging out at the mall with some friends, and we were inside a Dillard's. Why? Because I'm a high roller, okay? So we were inside a Dillard's, and I had a lighter that I was playing with, a little Zippo lighter, okay? The little metal ones, ching, 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 you know what I'm talking about, little Zippo lighter. Now, I'm not lighting anything on fire in Dillard's. That's very important for this story, okay? I have this little lighter, and I'm just playing with it. It doesn't even have any lighter fluid. It just, I like the sound, I had bought it, I thought it was cool, so I was just playing with it, and I put it in my pocket, and I walked out of Dillard's, and someone comes up and grabs my arm and says, empty your pockets. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, I'm sorry, strange man. No, uh, let go of me. You can have nothing to do with my pockets. I'm just going to keep walking. And he pulls out a badge, and he worked for a particular police department, and he said, I saw you steal something when you were in Dillard's. And I said, I didn't steal anything. What did you think I stole? And he said, lipstick. It's at that point in my life where I decided I would grow a beard because I didn't want to be accused of stealing lipstick anymore. And so he said, empty your pockets. And so I took out all my pockets. I said, I, I didn't steal any lipstick. I just, this is a lighter. That's probably what you saw me put in my pocket. I didn't have anything. And then instead of saying, Zach, I'm sorry, you're free to go. He said, if I ever see you in Dillard's again, you're going to jail. And so for like the next 10 years of my life, I didn't go into a Dillard's. Like we'd pull up to the mall right in front and I'd be like, I'm gonna go in through the Barnes and Noble. I need to check out some books. And so I would go in through there, terrified of what would happen. Now, can he bring a charge against me? Sure. Is it going to stick? No, it's not going to stick. In the same way, this text is not saying that there aren't people that will bring charges against you. What it's saying is if God is for you, who can be stronger than God? John Chrysostom, early church father says this, Yet those that be against us, so far as they are from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns and procures of countless blessings, and that God's wisdom turneth their plots into our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. Okay? So this text says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the strong, powerful, rhetorical answer to that is nobody. Who is stronger than God? What court do you take God to? He's infinite. Do you understand that? You don't, because you can't understand infinity, and neither can I. God is, infinity is not just like a number, it's a concept. How many songs will we sing to God for all eternity? An infinite number. Guess what? God knows what all those songs are, including the number of how many there are, despite the fact that that's impossible. God knows an actual infinite. God is strong. He's everywhere. You can't run from God. He's not a spatial being. You can't get away from him, okay? He has created galaxies that are billions of light years away that nobody will ever see except for God, and those stars simply burn for God's glory, and nobody sees them but God, and they just show God how great God is to God, okay? We're talking about another kind of being when we're talking about God. He knows everything at once. Not only does he know everything that is, he knows all potentials, everything the way things could have been. He doesn't have to think back like we think, okay, what was the name of that one actor? I can't remember, and we Google it. God's thoughts are all consistent, always before his mind at all times. He sees all truth as truth. All things that are black are black. All things that are white are white. There is no gray to God. He sees all things clearly. And not only that, he holds everything in existence. Acts says, in him we live and move and have our being. Colossians says of Jesus that he holds all things together by the word of his power. Not only are we dependent upon God for food and shelter and a job, we're dependent upon God to keep us existing 
to let us have being. Do you see what I'm saying? So if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? I have found that all anxiety, and by the way, I struggle with anxiety. All anxiety and all of fear comes down to two things that you might not believe about God. You don't believe that he's loving, that he actually likes you, and you don't believe that he's all-powerful. Typically, it's one of those two things. There are some people that believe that God is good, but he's not all-powerful, and so you're anxious and nervous because though he likes you, he can't control everything. Then there are other people that realize that God is all-powerful and he controls everything, but they don't believe that God is good. They don't believe that he's loving, and so then they stress out and they freak out. But if you really believed that God is good and loving, and if you really believe that God is all-powerful, whence cometh worry? From where do you get worry? It all goes back to not believing one of those two. And when I say you don't believe it, I don't mean if I gave you a theology test, you would say God is not good. What I mean is practically in your heart, you have a tendency not to believe that God is good like I do, okay? Meaning, not like when I say like I do, I don't mean I believe that God's great. You need to be better and be like me. What I mean is I don't believe that God's good most of the time, okay? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. By the way, all there is probably Jewish and Gentile Christians. That's the all there in context, okay? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, okay? This is what is called in rhetoric an a fortiori argument, okay? That's just a fancy Latin phrase that means to the stronger, an a fortiori is this. If I can run two miles, can I run one? Yesterday, this, isn't, this is a rhetorical question, but you can answer. Yes? Yes. In fact, one is included in the concept of two. It's super tough to run two miles without running one, okay? Like super hard. Go try it sometime, okay? If I can lift 500 pounds, can I lift 250 pounds? Yes. If I can do the harder thing, the stronger thing, then the easier thing is certain. Here's what this text is saying. If that God has given up the second person of the eternal trinity, the word of God, Jesus, for you, how will he, with Christ, not also give you all things? If he's given you the greater thing, surely he'll give you everything else, okay? Now, what does it mean when it says, look at the second part of verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What does that mean? Because there's a lot of weirdos on TV that would like to say that God will give you everything that you want. If you pray for a house, you'll have a house. If you pray for a boat, you'll have a boat. If you pray for all this money, you'll have money, despite the fact that Jesus says that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, right? What does it mean when it says that with Christ you'll be graciously given all things? Well, I think it means two things. One, there's a sense in which you are an an inheritor of the whole world. Because Christ is in charge and he owns everything, because you're in Christ, there's an inheritance for you. But I think what this text is saying, and I think that what it's putting the emphasis on is this, not that God will give you everything you want, but that he will give you everything you need. From this day till your salvation is complete, God will not drop you in that process. That's the idea, okay? He will give you not everything you want, he'll give you everything you need, specifically as it pertains to salvation, okay? As it pertains to salvation. I'll give you an example. I have a three-year-old son named Judah, and he is adorable, and he asks for everything, though. Can I have a snack? Can I have candy? Can I have ice cream? Can I go outside? Can I do this? He will ask for a snack while he's eating a snack. He'll be eating and be like, can I have a snack? And I'm like, yeah, just, just keep doing what you're doing. And there you go, right? Like he, will, he just wants everything. Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I have that? Can I see this? All the time. Now, do I give him everything that he wants? No. Why? Because I'm not a terrible dad. But I do give him everything that he needs. 
I give him food, I give him shelter, I give him love, I answer his questions. If it's something that won't hurt him and he asks for it, I typically give it to him, right? And I'm evil. The Bible would say if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more does God? And so uh, what this text is going to say is if you have Christ, how could you doubt that God will continue to take care of you, that he will continue to give you everything that you need, that he will continue to get you to the end of this journey of salvation, okay? Verses 33 through 34a, 33 through the first part of 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. I want you to see a few things in this uh, verse and a half. First, look at verse 33. Who shall bring, give me the next phrase there, any charge. Okay, now listen, this is important. If you know Jesus, that is your identity, and not Jesus plus all my little sins and failures, okay? I have found that most Christians have a tendency, we have a tendency to think of ourselves as like a Christian with an asterisk. Like on the salvation contract, there's like your name, and then there's a little asterisk next to it, and you go down to the bottom of the page, and it says, though God has to forgive this person because he promised to, really this person's awful and committed all these sins in college, and actually they're kind of bad, okay? If you are a Christian, you are not a Christian with an asterisk, you are not a Christian with fine print, you are not a Christian with a scarlet letter. Do you realize that? Do you realize that God sees you as perfect, pure, righteous, not in and of yourself, but because you're in Christ? I found that a lot of times we carry around these scarlet letters. We carry around a scarlet D for divorce or scarlet A for adultery or scarlet P for pornography or whatever. All those scarlet letters were pinned to Jesus on the cross, so your identity is only in Christ. Any charge that could be brought against you, God has separated as far as the east is from the west. Okay, let's keep looking. Verse 33 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Let's look at that last phrase, who is to condemn. There are four major things in your life that will try to get you to question your salvation, that will try to make you feel condemned, uh, that will condemn you, okay? The first is sometimes other people. Unbelievers, someone might call you a hypocrite, and what that will do in that moment is that will get you to question your identity in Christ. Another thing that will make you feel condemned, another thing that brings an accusation against you is your own sin. When you sin, after you've sinned, you might forget that you're righteous in Christ, your identity is perfect, and so you start sitting in that condemnation because you've committed some sort of sin, okay? Don't do that. Repentance is a shower, it's not a bath, okay? You're washed clean of sins, you don't sit around in your gross human soup of sins, okay? Third thing that will sometimes make you feel condemned is your own heart. 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Your heart sometimes will lie to you. Your feelings, your emotions sometimes will lie to you. And when you're struggling with some sort of sin, you'll start hearing these thoughts. I'm awful, maybe I'm not a Christian, maybe I'm going to hell. How could I really do this if I love Jesus or whatever? And this text is saying, take heart. God is the one who justifies you, despite the fact that your heart will sometimes condemn you. And then lastly, the devil. The devil seeks to condemn you. Revelation 12.20, I'm sorry, 12.10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. You have an enemy that condemns you. 
So when this text says, who will condemn you, there's a lot of answers to that. Others, your heart, your sin, and the devil. How many of those accusations stick, though, if God is the one who justifies? None of them. What the enemy will do, the enemy can't actually condemn you because Christ has already saved you. So what he will do is the next best thing, which is to make you feel condemned, okay? What he will do is he will ask questions. He will use this rhetorical Socratic method as well. Think of how the devil tempts Eve. Eve knows she's not supposed to eat of this tree and the devil simply has to ask a question. Did God really say this? Did God really say not to eat of this tree? And then she starts to think to herself, well, I thought he did, but maybe I misunderstood. That's what the enemy does. Are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure God's gonna save you? Seems like you have a lot of sin still. Are you sure that this is what's going to happen? He starts asking questions. And what he will keep doing is he will keep turning up the heat on those lies. So at first, it's like the devil's like this. He's like, two plus two is five. You're like, no, I don't think two plus two is five. I think it's four. And he's like, how do you know? Do you have a PhD in mathematics? Maybe you're wrong. How do you know that it's four? And if you continue resisting his lie, then he'll say, two plus two is five. And if you continue resisting his lie, then he will start screaming at the top of his lungs, two plus two is five. But listen, it doesn't matter how loudly a lie is screamed, it doesn't become more true. It's the same way with your salvation. It's the same way with the fact that you've been justified. No matter how loud the devil yells, you're condemned, God hates you, nobody loves you, whatever it might be, It's just like him screaming two plus two is five. He can yell it as loud as he wants. It doesn't change anything in reality. It doesn't change anything in reality. And this text is saying, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? A lot of people. How many of them will stick? None, because it is God who justifies who is to condemn. Verse 34b, let's look at the second half of verse 34. Why could you not be condemned? Why, if we are sinners, will those accusations of us being sinners not stick? Here's the answer to that. 34b, Christ Jesus, who is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's look at a few things. First of all, when it says Christ Jesus is the one who died, and then it says more than that, what does more than that mean? Okay. It doesn't mean like the resurrection has more salvation points than the cross. That's not what it's doing. It's not saying the cross is really great, the passion was a great movie, but more important than that is Easter. That's not what it's doing. It's meaning in addition to that. Jesus is the one who died. In addition to that, he didn't stay dead. The cross and the resurrection go together. Who is raised, who is at the right hand of God. So why do you not have to fear condemnation according to this text? Four reasons. They all point to Jesus. First, he died, meaning your punishment was paid. The wages of sin is death. We rebel against an infinite being, so we deserve to get our heads cut off. We deserve to die. We deserve the death penalty. Jesus dies on the cross on our behalf. That's what he's doing. Why can't God just wink at our sins and say you're forgiven? Because he's unjust. We've rebelled against God, and so Christ comes, and he takes the justice due to us. He died. But he was also resurrected, showing that Christ's death on your behalf has been accepted. And that resurrection, bodily resurrection, physical resurrection, is headed your way. If Jesus just died and someone came and said, your sins have been forgiven, but he was never raised, how would you know that they're right? How would you know he wasn't just some weird false prophet like you had a lot of going on in the first century? But his resurrection shows that his death worked. Death comes as a result of sin, so when you cancel out sin at the cross, you cancel out sin's ugly twin sister, death, at the resurrection. Third thing, 
He is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? That he is in the kingly place of rule and honor. He's already won the battle. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto Christ. That's what this text is saying. And then lastly, it's going to say he is pleading your case before the Father, okay? You have an advocate. The devil is like a prosecuting attorney. He's like a prosecutor. Jesus is like a defense attorney. But your debt has already been paid. There is no double jeopardy. The punishment, do your sin, has already been taken, so you cannot be tried for that crime again. You cannot be punished with that exact same thing again because Christ has taken it. That's what this text is saying. Okay, now listen, this is important. If you are a Christian, you're not waiting to not be condemned. You're not condemned now, okay? We believe here at Parkway, like all Christians have believed in all denominations for 2,000 years up until the modern times, in a real hell, a literal hell, a place of conscious, eternal torment forever where there is no reprieve and there is no rest for the enemies of God. If you say, Zach, I don't like that. That's the point. That's the point. You're not supposed to like it. Hell is real. It exists. But listen, if you are a Christian, it is not a reality for you anymore. Your worst fear that you could be tormented forever, if you're a Christian, it's not real for you. It's not going to happen. You are safe. You are secure. Everything is going to be okay if you know Jesus. Not that life will go well. Life will be very tough. But the worst thing that could happen to you, your greatest fear, is not true if you know Christ, period, period. Maybe God will pour out his wrath on me. What wrath? It was poured out on Christ. There's none left for you. It's all been satiated. It's all been satisfied. That's what this text is saying. Why do the enemy's accusations not stick? Why do our heart's accusations not stick? Why do uh, those that hate us, their accusations not stick? Because we've already been justified, because the penalty's already been paid. Verses 35 through 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verses 31 through 34 that we just went over went over the judicial aspects of your faith, okay? This text is going to go further than that, though. It's going to say not only are you not condemned, but God also loves you. Do you get the difference? It's not just that you're not damned. It's that God actually loves you. He actually likes you. He doesn't regret saving you. He, uh, he's not mad that you're like God's problem child. He loves you. And nothing can separate you from his love. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What does the phrase love of Christ mean? Does that mean our love for Christ? Or does that mean Christ's love for us? In Greek, this is what's called a subjective genitive. It's talking about Christ's love for us. What it's saying is, who shall separate you from the love that Christ has for you? Your love for God will change all the time. There are days I wake up and I think, man, I love God today. And there are other days I wake up and I'm like, why don't I become an atheist? My love goes up and down. But God's love for me stays the same. What will separate you from the love of Christ? Okay? And then he's going to mention some things shall tribulation, when you go through some awful thing, some terrible thing happens to you, will that separate you from God's love? No. What about distress? You're anxious, you're depressed, you're fearful, you've got some sort of distress, some sort of scary thing happening in your life, does it mean that God loves you less because you're going through that? No, that can't separate you from his love. What about persecution? 
What if you lose your job for your faith or somebody attacks you for your faith or you even get killed for your faith? Will that separate you from God's love? Nope. Or famine. What if you don't have what you need? You don't even have enough food to eat. Will poverty separate you from God's love? Nope. Now look at the next one. Or nakedness, or as we say in the South, nakedness, all right? What does that mean? What it means is when you don't have what you need, you don't even have clothing for your back. That's the idea. Will that separate you from God's love? When you don't have basic necessities, you don't have basic food and clothing or a house or whatever it might be, will that separate you from God's love? No. What about danger? No. What about a sword? What about a sword? What is that a reference to? That's a reference to potential violence or even death. Swords are not used for hunting. Swords in the Bible are not used for farming. Swords are used against people. If someone were even to attack you, would that separate you from God's love, okay? And the answer to all of this is no, that he holds firm, he holds steady. Look at verse 36. As it is written, Paul's gonna say, this is an Old Testament idea that God doesn't leave or forsake you, not just a New Testament idea. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, okay? That is a quote from Psalm 44, 22. And in that Psalm, it talks about Israel's faithfulness. And despite all that, they go through suffering. Will you still suffer if you are a Christian? Yes. There are a lot of people out there that would tell you that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be suffering. If you have some sort of suffering going on in your life right now, and you're thinking, man, what's wrong with me? When, when does normal life start? That is normal life. The Bible's gonna say that if you don't go through suffering, that you're not a Christian, that you have to go through suffering. That's how God sanctifies you. That's part of what it means by being in Christ. People that hate Christ will hate you, okay? Paul says these kind of things elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, look at the similarities of these lists. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 11, 26 through 27, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, uh, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, though many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Does that separate you from God's love? No. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world, straight out of the lips of Jesus, okay? What he's saying here by quoting the psalm is he's saying, it should be no surprise to you when you go through suffering. That's going to happen. But no matter how distressed you are, that does not stop God's love for you. God's love is not something you can fall in and out of. God is not a changing being. He is unchanging. There's no shadow or variation due to change. When he decides to set his love on you, he already knew all the ways you would try to mess it up, and he already knew all the bad things you would do and decided to love you anyway. Verses 37 through 39. This will be the summary of what Paul has been asking with these rhetorical questions. He's been asking rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question, and now he's just gonna drop his bombshell of an answer, okay? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? What the Apostle Paul has been asking, he's been, he's been asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. He's asked, who can be against us? Will God withhold things from us? Can someone truly condemn us? Can anything separate us from God's love? And here's his resounding answer. Ready? Nope. Not going to happen. No matter what it is, it's not going to happen. And not only that, look at verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. What does that mean? That's a Greek word. Hupernikomen is the word in Greek. Hupernikomen. Let me, get, let me explain what this word means. The Greek word nike is the word for victory. It's where you get the word Nike, by the way. That's the goddess of victory. That's why the company's named after that, because they do sports, right? So victory. So this word, hupernike, huper means above and beyond. It means over. That we don't just get to heaven by the skin of our teeth. We're not just barely saved. That when these things come, we overwhelmingly conquer. It's not even close. It's not like it's a 50-50. We overwhelmingly conquer. I'll give you an example. I like to play ping pong, okay? I'm no Forrest Gump. I'm no Forrest Gump. I do use my own paddle. I'm no Forrest Gump, though. First church I was at was at a little church near uh, Paris, Texas, if you know where that is. And I was the lead pastor there, and we had a youth minister. And he was taking the kids to camp, okay? And he said, man, I really need some help because I can't control all these kids. Will you come to camp? And I said, sure, I'll go to camp with you. Bad decision, all right, by the way. Uh, so we went to camp, and this little bunk thing that we had, this little uh, cabin, uh, it had a ping pong table, okay? So I made a challenge to all of the students. I got up on a hill like Goliath, and I said, if any of you can beat me, if any of you can defeat me at ping pong, we, me and the youth minister, we will clean your bunks, we will clean your bathroom, and we will buy you Slurpees on the day it's time to go, because they had a Slurpee machine. But if nobody can defeat me, you will clean our bunks, you will clean our bathrooms, and we will drink Slurpees and watch, okay? And guys, it was not even close, right? I, I just was murdering them. I, uh, I beat one kid with a sandal. He was using a ping pong. I used a sandal, and I beat him. I beat another kid with my Bible. Why? Because the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I used that, and I beat this kid. And at the end of the week, when it was time to go home, I was walking around drinking my Slurpee <laughs> as they were cleaning. And I would even take a little bit and spill it on the ground. I'd be like, you guys missed some. You missed some Slurpee over here. <laughs> Overwhelmingly conquered. That's the idea in this text. It's not just that you might be saved. You're kind of going to get saved. You're going through all this stuff, but it's a toss-up. When these persecutions strike, because you know Christ, you will be overwhelmingly successful. Overwhelmingly so. But notice, look at the next part of this line. It's not based on you or your strength. Who shall, uh, I'm sorry, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Look at the next phrase. Through him who loved us. That's Christ. It doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our strength. Maybe a better example would be if Jesus was the ping pong one who beat all the other kids on our behalf and we got to drink Slurpees because of his victory. It's not that we overcome these things by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and by trying to be really tough and just power our way through. It's only because Christ has been successful. Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered the devil. Christ has conquered false accusation. Christ has conquered these things. That's why we will be overwhelmingly victorious through him who loved us, okay? Now look at the list of things that can't separate us from God's love. Look at verse 38. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here are the things that he's going to mention that cannot separate you from God's love, okay? First, death. God's love for you is stronger than death. Next, anything in your life. You're thinking, what about my present struggle? What about this sin that I'm dealing with? What about whatever it might be? Anything in your life will not separate you from the love of God. Demons will not separate you from the love of God. You feel spiritually attacked. You feel spiritually oppressed. If you're a Christian, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. The demons, that's when this text says, it says rulers and authorities. Those are Jewish idioms for angelic powers, specifically demons. They're used elsewhere, for example, in Ephesians to talk about demons. They can't separate you from God's love. Look where it says uh, <clears throat> things present nor things to come, meaning fears for today or worries for tomorrow cannot separate you from God's love. No matter what you're struggling with today, no matter what you're afraid that you're going to struggle with, cannot separate you from God's love. Nor heaven, nor hell, nor anything in the whole world, nor anything created. What is not included on that list? Nothing. Now what some people will say is, okay, Zach, you're saying that this text says, and I'm saying, no, Paul says, and they say, okay, Paul says this text says, demons won't separate us from God's love, things we worry about won't separate us from God's love, but can I walk away from the faith? Can I separate myself from God's love? Can I, as a believer, lose my salvation? And people will debate this, but here's what's great about this text, you ready? This text answers that specific question. Look at verse 39 again nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Are you created? Yes or no? Therefore, you're included logically in this list. The whole point is not to say, here's all these external things that can't separate you from God's love, but you should really be nervous because you might. That defeats the entire purpose of what Paul is saying. He's saying, if it's created, it's not going to separate you from God's love, which includes you. Let me read you 100 verses. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All those given to Christ will be raised up. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 8, 28 through 30, which Jeff talked about last week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning, God never calls someone and saves them and doesn't glorify them. It's not half of those that God justifies, he glorifies. Everybody that's a part of this process makes it to the end. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice that it's God who is preserving you. It's God who's bringing that to completion. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Listen, the question is not, can you lose your salvation? That's a stupid question because it never belonged to you. The question is, can God lose your salvation? That's the issue. Is God a liar is really the question that that's asking. 
Not only is the Bible going to say, if you're truly a believer, you cannot lose your salvation. Not only is that true biblically, but logically that wouldn't even make any sense for you to lose your salvation. God's already forgiven you and poured out his wrath on Christ for all your sins. How would he damn you? What would you go to hell for? All those sins have been paid for. Is he going to adopt you and then put you back up for adoption? Your sins have been separated as far as the east is from the west, and he's going to run over to the west and grab them and bring them back to you? It doesn't make any sense logically. If God has a number in his head of how many people are going to be saved, that number does not change or else God doesn't know everything. So logically, it doesn't make sense. So what you're thinking is, okay, Zach, why then are there passages in the Bible that sometimes seem to say you can lose your salvation. Beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. Hebrews 6, we'll talk about those that have tasted of this heavenly gift, but fall away. There's all kinds of language about that, okay? Here's the answer to that question. Theologians debate this. They fight each other. They try to figure out all the... This is what the answer is simply, ready? Sometimes these passages are giving us God's perspective of our salvation, and sometimes the passage is giving us our view of a person's salvation. In God's mind, he's not going to lose anybody that he's going to save. He doesn't intend to save somebody and not save them. He doesn't fail to do what he wants to do. But I don't know who's saved. I don't know who's elect. And so when I see someone in sin, I'm supposed to go up to them and say, if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from the sin, you might not be saved. You might go to hell. So the reason people get confused is they don't realize when the Bible's talking about the security of our salvation, it's giving us from God's vantage point. God will not fail. Anybody that's a true believer in God's mind is going to be saved. There are other passages, though, that are telling us how to live our daily lives, and those passages are saying, when you see sin in your own life or when you see sin in another's life, don't ignore that because that could be a sign that they are on their way to perdition. That solves the problem when you understand they're addressing different things. Context is super, totally important, okay? I don't know how else to say it than like a valley girl. It's super important, okay? That's what's going on. Can you lose your salvation if you're truly saved? No. Can you be somebody who thought they were saved and rejected Christ and walked away but were never really saved? They just prayed a prayer at camp? Sure. So to say it another way, once saved, always saved is true, but it only works as long as you were once saved. There is no losing your salvation. There are people that you might have thought had salvation, and the fact that they walked away showed that they never had it, because those whom God justifies, he glorifies. With all that in mind, I want to end with this. Chapter 8 is an incredible chapter in Romans, and really what chapter 8 is saying, if you were to take all of chapter 8 and summarize it, here's really what it's saying. Things that seem to oppose you in your Christian life are actually working for your long-term good. Things that seem to oppose you in your Christian life are actually working towards your long-term good. It's like when we have to give one of my kids a shot, okay? All they think is that pain is happening. Why would daddy hold me down while the doctor sticks a needle in my leg? They don't realize that I'm trying to keep them from polio. In the same way, we will go through suffering, we will go through trial, we will go through difficult things, but take heart, even the difficult things we go through, God is using for our good. I want to end with a little quote by the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon, all right? Now, I don't want you to write down this quote. Sometimes in your note-taking, you will miss what's being said. I don't want you to take out your phone and take a picture of this quote. I just want it to hit you. I just want this quote to just hit you. I want you to hear what it's saying. If you want a copy of it, email me. I'm happy to send you a a copy of it, but we're going to throw it up on the screen, and I want to read it to you. It is a powerful, powerful, helpful text. Let me read it. 
I, the preacher of this hour, beg to bear my witness that the worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. And when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. If there is anything in this world for which I would bless him more than for anything else, it is for pain and affliction. I am sure that in these things, the richest, tenderest love has been manifested to me. Our father's wagons rumble most heavily when they are bringing us the richest freight of the bullion of his grace. Love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. Let me explain that one. In England, if somebody were to die, you would get a letter in the mail, and the edges of that envelope were marked in black. It was a, it was a notice of death, okay? So he's saying, love letters from heaven are often sent in black-edged envelopes. The cloud that is black with horror is big with mercy. Fear not the storm. It brings healing in its wings. And when Jesus is with you in the vessel, the tempest only hastens the ship to its desired haven. Let's pray as the volunteers come forward to serve communion. Almighty God, we thank you for your uh, grace and we just ask for your guidance. We thank you for this text. I pray for those in here right now who might not be Christians, who might be walking in blatant, unrepentant sin. I pray that they wouldn't have a false sense of assurance, that they would actually realize that their sin grieves you and that they need to bow down and repent and trust Christ. But I also pray for the person in here who does love Christ who has been saved and just can't seem to walk in that grace. They keep waiting for you to put them back up for adoption. They keep waiting for you to re-impute their sin back to them. I pray that they would know that that doesn't make any sense and it's also not biblical. I pray for anybody in here who's still trying to self-atone, who is taking a uh, metaphorical whip and hitting their back to show you how sorry they are. I pray that they would know that a back has already been beaten on their behalf. If there is someone in here who does not know you, I pray that you would open their hearts. They can't do it on their own. You have to open their hearts. So would you save them? I pray for people in here who are saved and just are wrestling. I pray that they might know that there's grace. I pray for people that are questioning their salvation, that they might know that they don't have to wonder and worry about when they were saved. They just have to trust you now. Whether they're already Christians or they're not, the solution is the same, to trust and rest in Christ and to receive mercy, to repent of sins and to turn. We love you, we thank you, we pray all this in Christ's name, amen.